You can turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 16. Uh, We'll actually be looking at two larger passages today in Genesis 16 and Genesis 21, uh, because these two passages comprise the entire uh, biography of the character of Hagar, whose story we are going to be considering together today. Her story in two parts, or two major episodes, as it were. And this is pretty much all the biblical data we have on the person of Hagar. Genesis 16, God's holy word. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant's in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. Amen. Continue, uh, turn a few pages over to Genesis 21, where this story picks up about 10 years later. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. 
And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I've borne him a son in his whole old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put her child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. God's holy word. Amen. Uh, Last Sunday was what some would call a national sanctity of human life Sunday. And considering that, Pastor Steve at Cedar Church asked me if I would prepare a message on a topic relating to the sanctity of human life. And so I was considering uh, various texts, various things as a preacher does to say what texts might the Lord want to speak through. Uh, A year or two ago at Grace Fellowship, I was preaching through the book of James, and we preached there on uh, James 1.27 that true religion is to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained for the world. A very fitting text, one that instructs us to care for orphans and widows in their distress, which is true religion. But I was really drawn to this story, this biographical account of the life of Hagar, Because sometimes stories, they instruct us in a way that these direction texts do not. There's one thing to know a command, but there's one thing and a way that a story pulls us in and helps us see things from a sympathetic perspective. And I believe that the story of Hagar is a fitting story for us to immerse ourselves in, to try and feel what this woman feels, to hear the cry that God hears, and to consider what we can learn of God's heart and what he would have for us as we consider the cries of women and children in distress. This sermon is entitled, uh, The Cry of the Mother and the Cry 
of the child. And so we'll dive into this story. We'll really try to get our mindset there and then draw out some applications and implications afterwards. So again, this, we have these two episodes in the life of Hagar, Genesis 16 and Genesis 21. All we have of her. And when we met her right there in Genesis 16, the first thing we read is that she is a bondservant, an Egyptian bondservant in Sarah and Abraham's household, specifically under the authority of Sarah. Now, it is very likely that she was given by the Pharaoh of Egypt as a gift to the Abrahamic household. In Genesis 12, we read that Pharaoh gifted a number of servants to Abraham and Sarah. And she's an Egyptian. She's likely a young woman, one who was not yet given in marriage, one who would have been given in service. We know at the very least she's young enough to bear children. And she is pulled out of her homeland from the land of Egypt, and she's coming, serving this family in a foreign land. She's an immigrant, a stranger, a young woman serving an increasingly powerful and wealthy household. It's almost the reverse, you might think, of Joseph who's taken from the land of Canaan and brought into slavery in Egypt. And we remember Joseph found favor with his master, and it seems here Hagar finds a level of favor as well. After all, she was the one that her mistress Sarai chose to be the one through whom she would desire to propagate the family line. We read in Genesis 16, 1-2, That Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar, and she said to Abraham, The Lord has kept me from having children, so go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And this is not explicitly stated, but this is a relationship known as a concubinage in the Old Testament. Hagar is what's called a concubine. It's sort of um, a relationship that we don't have any real parallel for in our day and age. It's like unto a marriage. In verse 3, she actually is called Abraham's wife. Hagar is. But it's the status of a lesser wife. So she retains still her position as a bond servant in the household. She is under the authority of the mistress, but in some level, a wife of Abraham. Now, this is not the sort of concubine relationship that we might see later in the period of the kings where they would gather to themselves a harem of women just for their own pleasure and desire. This sort of relationship in the patriarchal period is particularly a relationship for the purpose of bearing children to continue the family name and increase the family estate. We see a similar sort of thing happen in the lives of um, in the life of Jacob, where his wife's wives, Rachel and Leah, each give him one of their servants as a concubine to continue bearing more children in their sort of fruitless competition of who is the best wife. So that's the sort of nature in the relationship. Later on in the Mosaic Law, concubines are given very specific sorts of, of protections. It's a protected relationship by law and something that was recognized. Now, we know um, in the whole Old Testament, whenever there ends up being these sorts of polygamous relationships, it always ends up really messy. It always ends up with various levels of strife and discord in the family. And so we see here, Hagar, in getting pregnant, she now realizes that she's giving Abraham a gift that Sarah was never able to give him. 
she is going to bear him a child to continue the family name. So she realized she's gone from least importance to maximum importance. She's gone from zero to hero. And so she begins to look down on and despise Sarah. Hagar is a young woman. Sarah is old, in her 80s at this time. And she begins looking down on her. Sarah does not like this result. She complains to Abraham, and we end up reading that Sarah mistreats Hagar. The word is not specific. It might have been um, merely emotional or verbal abuse or perhaps even physical abuse. But whatever the case, it's bad enough that Hagar feels the need to run away. She runs away from home. This young, pregnant woman, without any resources, an immigrant in this land, she has nowhere to go, no family to turn to. She's been under this abuse from Sarah, who would have been kind of like a mother figure to her. The one making sure her needs are met, giving her instructions within the household, an older woman. And she runs away because of the pain of her experience. A young woman, enslaved in a foreign land, impregnated by her master, abused by his wife, running away. And even though this is in the middle of the story of Abraham, the great patriarch, yet we're given all this information about this young slave girl. One whom God has not, one who has not gone unnoticed from God, but in her running ways, particularly noticed by God. We read in verse 11 that the angel of the Lord who had appeared to her said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall call his name Ishmael for the Lord has heard of your misery. The name Ishmael means God hears. And in giving Hagar this prophetic name, God is saying, I heard your cry. You are not nothing in the midst of this powerful, wealthy, and important family. But I see your mistreatment and I hear you. And Hagar responds, she gives a name to God. Just as God gave a name to her child, she gives a name to God and says, you are the God who sees me. This is Hebrew El Roy. Elroy, the God who sees me. She says, I have been seen by God. How amazing, this young girl. She's seen by God. She is heard by God. And God gives her both guidance and a promise. He directs her to return to her household. That's the only place she has resources and care. He directs her to return and he promises her that she will have a son. And remember, childbirth at this time is so dangerous. It's so scary. But he promises her that her son will survive. She will survive. And she will give him the name that God gave her. And so she obeys. In verse 15, Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son that she had born. Amazingly, Abraham uh, listens to her. He believes her that God gave her this name and names his son Ishmael. God hears God sees, God guides, God directs and promises for this young immigrant slave girl. Now in the intervening years, we see that Abraham really does love Ishmael. He cares about him, cares for him. He is the heir apparent. Ishmael is set to inherit Abraham's vast fortunes. How amazing for Hagar. She comes to a foreign land and is bound to receive more than she ever could have dreamed of through the inheritance going to her son. 
We, we don't read any more of strife between her and Sarah. There might have been. We don't know, but we don't read of it. But after a period of 13 years, once again, things begin to fall apart in Hagar's life. Sarah, miraculously, inexplicably, in her 90s, bears a child. She has a son, Isaac, for Abraham. And because she is the free wife, not the wife of servitude, her son automatically disinherits the concubine's son. And so immediately, through the birth of this child, all of Hagar's new hopes and dreams for her son, for herself, they're dashed. Her son is no longer inheriting the fortune. She's not going to have everything she thinks. It's all going to be going to Isaac. Isaac grows up and is weaned at likely three years old. In Genesis 21, verse 9, we read that Sarah saw the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham, that he was mocking. He was laughing at this toddler. Ishmael would have been about 16 years old at this time. This 16-year-old kid mocking this new kid who seems bound to take away everything from him. Maybe he's gloating in some way, trying to hold on to some vestige of pride. But once again, this situation greatly displeases Sarah. Greatly displeases her. And she tells Abraham to get rid of the slave woman and her son. For I don't want him sharing any inheritance with my son. And Abraham, we see, is at first he's reticent to do this. Because he does love Ishmael. Even though it is within um, Sarah's rights as the free wife to send away, in a sense, sort of fire the servant. And a sort of soft divorce, a soft firing. It's within her rights. But Abraham needs some comfort and affirmation from God in this. And so in Genesis 21, verse 11 and 12... God says to Abraham, don't be distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you because it's through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. And I will make the son of the slave into a nation also because he's your offspring. So with this assurance, Abraham seeks to send them out on their way with some provisions. It says he gave them some food and a skin of water and sent them out. He put them on her shoulders and they went on their way. So Hagar sends them off with some food and provisions, hoping they can get to the next town or wherever they're going to establish a new life. However, once again, this situation turns dire. Hagar and Ishmael head out the door, but we read that they began to wander in the desert of Beersheba. Wandering. They are lost. They are off the path. They don't know where they're going. And this is a desert. It's the Middle East. It's really hot. It's really dry. It's not like here where we get lots of precipitation, streams, rivers everywhere. It's a dire situation because they've run out of the water in the skin we read. And without water in such a dry, hot climate, they are quickly getting dehydrated. Ishmael, her 16-year-old, her teenage son, is getting so dehydrated, amazing, that she's pretty sure he's about to die. She lays him under a bush, we read, hopefully to just give him a little bit of shade, just a little bit of respite in his dire situation. And she walks away 100, 200, 300 feet because she's like, I can't see him die. This child of promise that the Lord gave me, the one who reminds me that God hears, he's about to die and I can't bear to look upon it. Ishmael, 
His life is in the brink. His life hangs in the balance. But once again, God's ear is open to the distressed ones. Verse 17, we read that God heard the boy crying. God heard the boy crying, dehydrated, lying under a bush about to die. Just as God heard his mother crying, a young pregnant girl in a foreign land, God heard her cry. God now hears the cry of her son. And once again, God intervenes in this situation. The angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up. Take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. He says, lift him up. Take him. I will care for you guys. But surely she's thinking, we are out of water. He is dehydrated. He is dying. Yes, you say to do this. How will it happen? What is going to be our plan going forward? But then verse 19, God opened her eyes. God opened her eyes and she saw a well, a well of water in the desert, a well she had never seen or noticed or perceived before. She sees a well in the desert and she fills the skin with water. They drink. Their um, moisture is restored. And with this water, this resource they didn't know was there, this resource God provided for them, they make it. They make it out of the desert. They get established. And we read in verse 20 that God was with the boy. They lived in the desert. He became an archer. He provided for him and his mother hunting game in the desert. His mother finds a wife for him from their own people in Egypt. And he becomes a father of many, a powerful nation. They didn't need to go back to Abraham and Sarah. They didn't need to go back asking for help because with the provision of this water in the desert, it gave them enough that they could then become an independent, self-sustaining household. Ishmael eventually buries Abraham with Isaac, seeming like something of a good relationship there. We don't read any more of Hagar in the biblical story. This is the story of Hagar, a story of this young, immigrant, slave girl, thinks she would be forgotten by, in this great, powerful family, but God hears her cry. And when her child's life is hanging in the balance, God hears the cry of her son and meets their need with resources they didn't know. It's the story of Hagar, but also the story of God. In this story, we see something of God's heart, God's heart of compassion, of love and mercy for those who are in desperate and difficult situations. Over and over in the Old Testament, we're told about God's especial care for those who feel small, for those who are desperate and distressed. Because our God is El Roy, the God who sees. He is Ishmael, the God who hears. Again and again, the Psalms speak of God's care. Psalm 68.5 says, A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. Psalm 146, 8 to 9, the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. Psalm 10, 14, but you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. 
the victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. God hears, God sees, and God provides. And we serve the same God today. The same God who has a heart of love and compassion for the vulnerable. God showed up for Hagar and her child. He provided miraculously in her case. God still is about providing for the people for whom he cares, but he most often doesn't do it miraculously. He most often does it through his people, the body of Christ, who are to be the hands and the feet of Jesus, showing forth God's heart of care and concern on his behalf and in his name. God shows his nature, his attributes through ordinary people like you and me. We are called to reflect the heart of our Heavenly Father, to defend, to lift up, to watch over, to help those in need, the fatherless, the husbandless, the immigrant, the distressed. God's eyes and ears are open to the cries of mothers and children in distress, and so should ours be. Like Hagar, there's many women in our communities, perhaps our neighbors, who come from difficult backgrounds, perhaps a confusing and abusive home life, perhaps lacking basic resources without a support system, without guidance, needing provision. God hears their cry, and God desires to bless them through us. And so how might we seek to show God's heart and apply these principles, especially considering uh, the call of the sanctity of human life. Well, in the case of women in crisis pregnancies, in difficult situations, there's two cries we ought to hear. The cry of a mother in distress and the cry of a child whose life hangs in the balance. And the Lord hears the cry of both. Now, I understand that It's not every case where a woman who is considering an abortion is in a desperate or difficult financial situation. I understand there's different reasons, um, some much worse than others given. But over and over again, the statistics tell us that the primary reason given why women seek to end the life of their child is due to financial hardship and distress followed closely by relational hardship and distress. The major, um, the greatest picture of the average procurer of an abortion is a low-income single mother in her late 20s with a small amount of college education, already a mother, already struggling to make ends meet. And the primary force that is driving women like this to do these terrible acts is the thought of, I can't do it. I don't know how I would provide for this child. I'm barely managing as it is. I'm barely caring for the children I have. And there's a lack of imagination to think, how on earth could I go forward with this? How will I provide? It's that feeling of Hagar of being trapped in the desert and thinking, I don't see any way out other than death. I don't see where there's provisions. I only see desert all around me. Now, God's standards of right and wrong, his justice, is unchanging. 
And there is no reason that could ever justify taking an innocent human life. But when we understand the feelings of desperation of the waterless desert, we can respond as the hands and feet of Jesus to try to be God's sources of provision. You see, God opened Hagar's eyes to see resources that she didn't know were there, to see help she didn't know was available to her. And God is calling us today to be that provision of water in the desert, to show where there are the resources that were not before seen, to offer through our own help and services the provision to give hope to go forward, thinking, with this, I can go forward. I can care for this child. The child's life will not be lost. We want to bring hope for the future, to make the reality of caring for a child a joyful possibility. So how can we provide that water in the desert? It might mean various things. It might mean financially, sacrificially supporting programs of care that are already in place. It might mean investing in your local church diaconal fund. It might mean volunteering in different community support organizations, helping to provide job training or education, housing, supplies, counseling, Or it might mean simply being a friend to someone you know who's in need, a listening ear, a willing counselor. God's word doesn't necessarily bind any of us to any particular specific application, but he does bind our hearts to share in his heart, his heart of love, his heart of care and compassion that is open to the cries of mothers and the cries of children, and so should ours be. God sees, God hears, God guides, and God provides, and we ought to as well. It takes motivation to serve in this sort of way. And where does this motivation to serve and to give sacrificially of our time, our talents, our treasures come from? It's when we remember just how freely and graciously God has given to us. You see, we come to him with nothing. No resources, nothing in my hands I bring simply to your cross I claim. God found us when we were helpless. He heard our cry. And he didn't just say, here's enough to get started and I'll leave the rest up to you. He's provided everything for us. All our remission of sin all Christ's righteousness, all the heavenly inheritance that awaits, he's given us everything, even his only son. You see, Jesus, God didn't preserve him when he was thirsting on the cross. He said, I thirst. And Jesus died. And he died that we might have his life within us. And God raising him from the dead gives us life and an eternal promise and inheritance through him, reminding us that through Jesus now God always hears. He always sees the cries of his people. And if we can remember that we're not the great ones who have it all together, but God has given us his great grace, perhaps we can remember that the love of Christ compels us to live not for ourselves, but for him who died for our sakes and was raised. To love, knowing that he first loved us, to give sacrificially of what we have, knowing that the one who was rich 
became poor for our sakes so that through his poverty we might become truly rich. We have so much to share, so much to give. Oh, that God's heart would be our heart, working through the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do confess to you that our hearts are often cold. Our feet are often immobile. Our eyes very focused and fixed on our own needs and concerns. Lord, you desire to meet the cries of those in distress through us. And we ask, Lord, that you will unstop our ears, that you will unblind our eyes, that we would be open to the needs all around us, that we would even follow Christ's word to go into the highways and the hedges to seek out where we can bring water in the desert. Lord, bring opportunities. Incite our hearts to prayer, not out of guilt or compulsion, but out of love, out of the delight of getting to show forth the heart of Jesus, out of the joy of entering into your mercy and your generosity and compassion. Oh Lord, would we know the joy of following you in caring for the least of these, in caring for those in distress. Help us, we pray, O Lord. Provide us opportunities for Jesus' sake, for his glory, as we pray in his name. Amen.